I think polarization is a true disease, and I think it, it causes people to say things like this. Are there students out there who show up to schools who don't have food, and can schools help solve that problem? Is like a baseline question. And once we start saying things like hunger is relative, I'm like, I'm not sure we're having the right debate. If we're going to, as a society, adopt the responsibility of educating students, I think we should adopt the policy that you can't, you can't go hungry. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. All right, Ricky. Well, listeners, uh, please send in your voicemails. Our voicemail is 321-200-0570. We're going to be doing a trendy Thursday, we think, this week. So send in some trends you want us to cover later this week or maybe in a future trendy episode or just anything else that's on your mind. Ricky, I think we have a plug. Yes. Um, the last episode of season one of The Hardest Step, which is a podcast in our network, is an interview with Jesse Crossan. It will be out tomorrow. He turned his life around in prison and ended up getting a degree in psychology while there and also got a conditional pardon from um, Virginia's then Governor Ralph Nordham. So interesting interview and make sure you see the last episode. We've got some we've got some topics today. Uh, should all kids get free lunch? Some states say yes. Well, critics argue that's wasteful. Then we'll talk about the rise of tattoos and the changing meaning of them. But first, next week is Chicago's mayoral election. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, she's lost her bid for re-election. A stunning, stunning defeat for Mayor Lightfoot. The first incumbent in 40 years to be defeated after just one term. Public safety is the number one issue, and if we could address public safety, then we could address crime. I don't want to be the next person on the news that's killed by a stray bullet. With just about a week until Election Day, every public appearance, handshake, and endorsement become all the more critical for Johnson and Vallis. Public safety is the fundamental right of every American. It is a civil right. With our voices and our votes, we've come together as one city to say that we deserve a Chicago that is better, stronger, safer for everyone. The reason why we're covering this is not just because we have a lot of Chicago listeners, which we do, but because this race really represents something that's going on around the country. And we'll come back to that because I think like what's happening in cities, particularly this debate that's happening within the Democratic Party within cities is really fascinating. And given there aren't a lot of elections going on in the country right now, we want to take a deep dive into what's happening here. Joe, where should we start? Yeah, so like you said, uh, what's happening here could tell us a lot about the politics of uh, major cities across the country as two candidates face off with public safety at the forefront of the debate. So just to look back in 2019, Lori Lightfoot made history as the first black woman and first openly gay person to be elected as the mayor of Chicago. Her victory was nothing short of impressive. She won the vote of every single one of Chicago's 50 wards, making it a clean sweep across the city. But in last month's first round of voting, she didn't even make the two-candidate runoff. She lost resoundingly, getting just under 17% of the vote. So the obvious question here is what exactly happened? And the polling suggests that a single issue really sunk her above all crime. 
nearly half of all voters put that as their top issue, and nothing else came even close. So it stands to reason that that's probably still front of mind as voters head back to the polls a week from today to decide who will replace Lightfoot. There are two candidates, Paul Vallis, the former CEO of Chicago's public schools, who's run a tough-on-crime campaign with the backing of the city's top police union, or Brandon Johnson, a county commissioner and a former school teacher, uh, with Chicago's teachers' union rallied behind him. Now, the race is anyone's to win, with latest polling showing Vallis with a two- to six-point lead. Ravi, do you think the police union will get Vallis the votes he needs? Well, let's get to that. Let's get to that. I think nobody really knows the answer to that question. But let's let's start with Lightfoot, because that's really fascinating here. Like what happened to this mayor who didn't even make the runoff? Like that's really crazy. And you talked about it, Joe, crime. Uh, you know, Secretary Arne Duncan, who is Obama's uh, Secretary of Education, and used to run the school system in Chicago, said, you know, of crime, he said, this is the issue and nothing else comes close. Uh, crime in Chicago is a major issue. Uh, it has a higher per capita homicide rate than New York or Los Angeles. Uh, notably, it is lower than some other Midwestern cities like St. Louis and Detroit. Uh, but the numbers hit a 25-year high in 2021 with 797, according to the Chicago Police Department. Now, that number's decreased last year, but it's still higher than when Lightfoot took office in 2019. And my sense here, Ricky, of the politics here, is that Lightfoot is not pro-police enough for the police, and particularly she had Mm -hmm. some clashes with them over things like mandates uh, on the vaccines. Uh, Mm -hmm. But she's not reforming and social justice enough for the left, and so she's kind of in this no man's land of Chicago politics. And, you know, I don't want to be rude, but she's not the most gifted retail politician if you watch videos of her and the way that she <laughs> conducts herself. So I think when you combine Certainly all not. of that together, maybe a more gifted politician could sell her brand of politics, but it seems like she's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because I think crime is animating a lot of these urban elections. We saw Eric Adams um really rise to the occasion as a former cop who took the Democrat primary here. And, you know, this is notably a nonpartisan election. So it's not, you know, in the way that in Democrats essentially pick who the candidate is here in New York City. And then, you know, the Republican is just kind of there for show, more or less, which Mm -hmm. is an unfortunate um, way that this shakes out. But I mean, you know, this is a 75 percent Democrat city at this point, looking historically at the votes, but there's clearly competing visions about about police reform, about defunding the police, about whether more cops are a solution to more systemic um, issues of crime. I think that we're seeing the standoff and compete competing visions here for sure. And Lightfoot was considered consistently kind of in the middle. And um, to your point, not really appeasing either of these competing factions of progressive policing policies and perhaps more traditional ones like the Eric Adams sort of route. Um, And yeah, 70% of Chicago uh, residents said that the city was on the wrong track. 44% of people cited crime as their top issue, which is just blows everything else out, out of the water. And notably the next closest was criminal justice reform at 13%, which also kind of, I would say fits into the crime bubble, but that's a demonstration that there are uh, fracturing kind of visions in the in the left and among Democratic candidates in terms of whether it's a justice reform or a policing reform sort of solution in the end. 
Yeah, and you know, as Joe mentioned, you know, we've got these two candidates who are left. They could not be more different, Ricky. And I think from the perspective of somebody who's come out of democratic politics, progressive politics, I got my first job in politics in Chicago working for AKPD, which is the big political strategy firm there that helped the Obama campaign. Um, it was run by Axelrod, who famously made his his sort of his career in Chicago politics. What's fascinating here is this is as clear a choice within the Democratic Party as you're going to see, right? Or within cities, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, as Joe talked about a little bit, Paul Vallis was the CEO of Chicago Public Schools from 1995 to 2001. Uh, and this was right after, this was after the, the district was placed in mayoral control, which notably will be ending during the term of the next mayor. So at the end of the term of the next mayor, they'll basically be passing on control of the schools to like a hybrid model where the mayor no longer controls the schools. Uh, also mm -hmm. notably, uh, the teachers union contract will be up for re renegotiation at a time when, uh, you know, 2019, famously, there was a strike that lasted 11 days that got really hot. Also in the middle of COVID, there was a huge fight between the mayor and teachers where school wasn't happening for a period of time. Uh, and so you've got this guy, Paul Vallis, you know, you know, you, he, he'll be attacked as like a neoliberal education reformer, et cetera. Uh, and then you've got Brandon Johnson, who's a former middle school teacher who was hired as a Chicago teachers union organizer in 2011. And he uh, still holds that job. Uh, he was also the Cook County commissioner uh, in 2018 and 2022. Um, and he received the teachers union endorsement even before he announced his candidacy. So you've got Vallis on one hand, uh, you know, sort of a moderate Democrat pro-police. You got the endorsement of the police union. And then you've got uh, a more um, progressive, far far left progressive, however you want to say, candidate in Brandon Johnson, who's very close with the teachers union. These, these two people represent very different choices for the city, including on the two major issues, policing and schools. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see um, the way that this first election shakes out into the second because you did have that seven, 17% that went for Lightfoot, even though Vallis was uh, way ahead in the first round. He, um, a lot of the Lightfoot voters are moving towards Johnson. There's kind of a sense that Vallis is uh, a Republican of sorts. Mm -hmm. In fact, um, Johnson even accused him of being one at the, at the debate. But I think like one point that I find really interesting here is that these seem like more from a national standpoint, like I've always been a very, very reform oriented election person and I'm, I'm for open primaries. I find that being in New York and not being a Democrat, I have almost no say over who my, my mayor is in this city, which is really unfortunate the way that primaries close out independents and Republicans from actually having a meaningful voice. And so I would say that this model of an election is also just interesting to me optics wise, because the Democratic voter, voters in a majority Democrat city are actually being able to choose between competing visions within their own parties in an organic way. The Republicans or the independents as well also get to have a voice in this system. And so I think that this is an, an interesting thing to watch in terms of the, the way that the election is working. I think this is a better mm -hmm. exercise of democracy. And it's also interesting in terms of what the implications might be nationally. And Eric Adams was asked about um, Lori Lightfoot's defeat and issues of crime. And this was his response. Public safety is a prerequisite to prosperity. Same in Chicago, like New York, and many of our big cities across America. We are focused on public safety because people want to be safe. They don't feel safe and they are actually safe. 
then you're going to lose control of your city. Is what happened to her a warning sign for you here in New York? <laughs> to the contrary. I think it's a warning sign for the country. So obviously he's kind of of the Lightfoot ilk. I would say he's probably a more gifted politician in terms of his ability to sell that brand of politics. Uh, but these Certainly. two... Yeah, and these two candidates, Vallis and Johnson, let me just give you a rundown of the, you know, because we talked about how much crime is an issue here, right? Like, obviously, I'm going to get, I'm going to gravitate towards the school stuff, which is really important. Uh, but they do have very different visions. So Vallis is like the sort of traditional tough on crime candidate. He wants to hire a thousand new officers. Uh, some of them would be rehires uh, and bring back mm -hmm. those who left the force during Lightfoot's administration. He wants to increase patrols on public trans uh, transit and loosen restrictions on officers. Uh, Johnson is sort of a defund the police uh, candidate. He's run away from those accusations, although he's made statements along those lines in the past and is kind of backing away from it. But it generally comes out of that school. Um, he doesn't want to increase the police budget at the very least and is kind of cagey about whether he wants to increase the raw number of officers. Um, and he wants to put out calls into mental health professionals' hands rather than officers and wants to promote 200 officers to detectives to solve unsolved murders. And so these are different visions. Now, if you're listening to that, some of those things are actually not mutually exclusive. So you could see mm -hmm. a combination of those things. So, for instance, uh, what Johnson wants to do around detectives doesn't seem mutually exclusive with what John, uh, Vallis wants to do in terms of hiring more officers. But obviously, this being an election, it has less to do with policy than about signaling and the kind of story you're telling and who within your base trusts you. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting that we're seeing a hard pivot from, at least in my view, from Johnson, who was involved in sponsoring a policy that would, quote, redirect funds from policing and incarceration to public services not administered by law enforcement, which to me sounds like a version of defund pretty much as clearly as it can come. And we're, we're seeing a consistent distancing from that sort of policy. And I think, you know, this does have national implications. And it's nice to see for a change competing visions on the left, actually sparring and going head to head. But as you alluded to a couple times here, there's um, a lot of accusations of union capture in this election. Mm -hmm. I think Chicago, you know, two very notorious unions, the police union and the teachers union. And so Ravi, I'm curious to hear how you think um, from Johnson's perspective, being aligned, being a teacher, being aligned with the teachers union, being backed by them. How does that impact this election? Yeah, you know, municipal unions, you know, we've talked about them a lot on this podcast and obviously with the, with the strike going on in L.A., you know, th this is this is high time to talk about the role of these unions. And I think, you know, the way I think of them is that they're they have monopolies over critical services, police do and teachers do. Mm -hmm. And they often use that monopoly as a source of power. You know, Johnson was carried into the runoff by a huge union effort uh, with nearly $4 million in contributions from labor unions and something on the order of a thousand paid union staffers and volunteers. So this is real muscle. And the two of them, like, so there, there are more unions behind Johnson to be clear, but if you take these two powerful unions, the police union is around 17,000 members and the teachers union is around 20,000 members. So roughly comparable size of membership going head to head in this race. And when these candidates are asked about it or people talk about it, like you said, union capture is the right word. That is what comes up. Let's go to a clip first with Johnson, who is asked basically whether he could operate independently of the teachers union. Let's listen to this clip. Where do you differ from the CTU? If you're asking me if I do not believe in public education, 
What, what kind of question is that? Look, public education at the expense of the state, after all, is a Negro idea. Those are the words of W.E.B. Du Bois. So yes, I believe we should have fully funded school. Yes, I believe that workers should be protected. Dr. Keene said that if the labor rights movement and the civil rights movement were to ever collide, what enormous potential we would have. As somebody who used to coach candidates in forums like this, this is, a, this is quite the move. It's basically like answering the question you want to answer. It's like, well, you don't, mm -hmm. you're asking me whether I believe in public education, which is not the question. He was asked whether he differs from the union on, which he definitely couldn't answer. Uh, and so, so that's Johnson's issues. Uh, and then Vallis has his own issues here. And I think his ceiling is in part uh, being constructed uh, you know, over the fact that the head of the t the police union is a, is a rather right-wing figure for Chicago, somebody who definitely doesn't represent the will of the majority of Chicago. And so Johnson's team is trying to paint Vallis as a, a right-wing figure because of how cozy he is to the police union. Let's look at a clip just from local news about how this is being characterized. Candidate for mayor Paul Vallis says he's proud to have won the endorsement of the local fraternal order of police union. The president of the union is political firebrand John Catanzara Jr. In the wake of uh, the endorsement of Vallis, Mayor Lightfoot cited Catanzara's support for former President Trump and other controversial conservative interests. She taunted in a tweet, so much for being a lifelong Democrat, Paul Vallis. So, Ricky, I, I'm always fascinated. One of, some of my favorite figures, and I mean favorite as in like most entertaining figures in American life, are the heads of these unions. And, you know, famously, the Chicago Teachers Union during the 2019 crisis was on TV all the time. Uh, and, you know, some of these police union heads are, mm -hmm. you know, rather... I would say unrepresentative of the will of voters, uh, these police union heads. And so I think what Vallis is, is grappling with here is he really needs the police union, but uh, some of their leadership is, is rather inconvenient for him right now. Yeah, I think this is um, pretty much the, the best possible display of the dangers of union capture because it's not about pandering to voters at this point in time. It's about pandering to special interest groups and, and people that are employed by the public sector, no less, which to me, I think really does undermine the democratic system. But I think to just kind of put a cap on this conversation here, it is a local election, but I do think that there are so many important and interesting reasons why we should talk about this, including a historical loss and a referendum on someone who frequently became a meme in the pandemic, which is um, pretty entertaining to watch. And, you know, there's a referendum on defund policies that goes even as deep as people who were previously pretty much on board with that completely changing their tune in this election. And you see a moderation on that front, competing visions within the Democratic um, primary or within the Democratic Party in general. And also this issue of urban crime, which I think will continue to be an important and animating issue across the country and a city in which this, you know, in New York, there's an argument to be had about the degree to which crime is actually going up. But here in Chicago, you could not have had a more resounding um, referendum on the fact that crime increased during Lightfoot's uh, tenure, whether or not that was her fault is a, a question that we can uh, leave up to the voters. But certainly she's she's out in a historical way. And I think that this is going to be an important election to watch. Right. And, and just want to underscore something we started with, which is this data from the polling, which is to, to nationalize this one last time. If you remember the polling that we mentioned at the beginning, when voters are asked what issue they care about, 44% pick crime and public safety and 13% 
chose criminal justice reform. Now, I'm somebody who believes in criminal justice reform, but I think this data is really instructive to say, like, all right, when the rubber hits the road, politics change a little bit. And, I th and I'm always fascinated mm -hmm. by the difference between mayoral politics and then legislative politics, because I think often if you're a mayor, it's tangible. And so I think Democratic voters tend to kind of tack towards the middle more in these mayor races, like Eric Adams, for example. If you, you know, there's some people who are voting for Eric Adams, and then they're voting for members of the New York State legislature who are way to the left of him. Uh, and I think mm -hmm. in part because the legislature, it kind of dilutes your vote. So you're just almost like, all right, I'm signaling a certain thing because it's not as tangible. That person isn't an executive in charge of my life every day. And then these, you know, executives of the city, people tend to get a little bit more moderate. So in that sense, handicapping this, the polling is favoring Vallis right now, but it seems like the messaging is very aggressive towards the end here. So I, I view this as a coin flip. I know that's kind of a, uh, it's kind of a cop out, uh, no, no pun intended, Ricky, but I could see this going either way. But I think that, that the very fact that Vallis is viable, I think is a miracle here. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll be sure to update you guys when uh, we get the results. Well, there's an interesting debate unfolding right now about universal school lunches. Joe, what's going on? Yeah, that's right. The governor, Tim Walz of Minnesota, signed a bill on March 17th that will provide free breakfast and lunch to all students. The state will now make up the difference for the cost of the meals that are not already subsidized by the federal government. Minnesota joins California, Colorado, and Maine in implementing universal free breakfast and lunch to students. Now, critics say it's a shotgun solution to a problem that requires a more surgical approach, but that isn't stopping solutions like this from becoming more and more common at the state level as action at the federal level becomes increasingly less likely. Now, guys, before we dive in, I need to know from both of you, how would you rate your school lunches from childhood? <laughs> well, Ricky and I had very different school mm. experiences. I bet hers was better than mine. I mean, <laughs> New York was a disaster school lunch-wise, and I actually had our researchers um, pull up the current school lunch menu, and I was comparing it to what I had as a child. It was terrible. It was like soggy tater tots. Uh, there was pizza on the menu twice each week, and now you'd think that that's awesome. But these are the crustiest, like, like almost like um, stale pizzas. There was the boat pizza and the circular pizza, and it's so disgusting that nobody would eat them. Uh, and it was it was horrible. And I was looking at the menu that that our researchers pulled up, and now it's like international. There's like fajitas, there's all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, wow. Like I don't know if it's good, but it certainly is different than when I was a kid. I don't have a lot of faith in the execution of the international menu at a school cafeteria, but <laughs> I appreciate sure. the inspiration at least. Yeah, I would say my school lunches were not memorable, which I guess means that that is a net positive relative to what the rest of the country um, tends to experience. I was researching this segment and I found this Instagram from um, a school in Queens. Some kid made an anonymous uh, Instagram account and would post his school lunches. And, you know, on one he's written help in a, um, I'm assuming it's a he for some reason, help in, in marinara sauce. And he writes in the caption, by the way, help is written in marinara sauce and I do not actually need help. What has Michelle Obama <laughs> done is one of the comments that he flew out there. Um, <laughs> he described biscuit as uh, seeming as though it was made out of pure clay. And so I think this is a there's there's a question about 
whether school lunches and the execution are good in the first place, and then also whether to universalize this. But I think on a more serious note, this is a question of over the pandemic, we we patched a, a systemic issue with families not being able to feed their children or having insecurity with food at record rates, not being able to work. And we we extended this universal school lunch program. One in eight households are food insecure right now um, in terms of those with children. And so this is a legitimate question. And I think it's hard to even measure if you take away school lunches as a guarantee for certain families, how many were, were secure thanks to school lunches that could even grow. And so I think this is actually like a really serious question to ask and um, an interesting set of solutions coming out from these different states that are now guaranteeing these lunches. Yeah. And, and the way this tends to work, and, and we should get to the debate, which I, I find really frustrating and stupid not to not to just paint with a broad brush, but the, the national debate about this, I think, misses a lot yeah. from the school experience. But um, the basic contours of this, there's a lot going on regulation-wise, but the most important thing to know is that there's this program called the National School Lunch Program. It was established under Truman. And as of now, it's providing something like 5 billion lunches for a total of over $14 billion a year as of 2019. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing to know about this is that the eligibility requirements have three tiers to them. If you went to public school, you'll know these tiers. Uh, if you're at or below 130% of the federal poverty line, you get free lunch. If you're between 130 and 185% of the federal poverty line, you receive reduced price lunch. Everybody else gets full price lunch. Now, this is really important because that to me, like that framework is the critical question about like, is this the right framework? Is this what we should be putting on schools? And there's a separate question around the nutrition around school lunches, which I think we'll get to, but this is the question, right? And so what Minnesota is doing essentially from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, right? They're just saying no more tears, everybody's free, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and there have been versions of this as well. Um, there was a ballot measure in Colorado that won um, that there were 70,000 students who had been getting free lunches that um, were at risk of losing them in, with this pandemic aid uh, kind of drying up. And um, they were not eligible to receive free or reduced price lunches. So they would probably fall into the category of um, families that, you know, that was a, a helpful added benefit to them. And so they made this free for all regardless of need. Um, and that will cost taxpayers $100 million, which, you know, I think I, I have serious questions about whether that is the best way to address child hunger with $100 million of taxpayer money. I do think that there's a case to be made that you you do have genuinely food insecure families in your state. And is it better to apply that money more directly to them rather than allow the school or a school cafeteria to be the um, provider of nutrition and, and calories. I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's a better kind of more voucher based system. A hundred million dollars is a lot. And that could fight child or child hunger in a way that guaranteeing a high income kid, a free lunch is not going to solve child hunger. Yeah. I think here, here's my take on that. You know, I think, you know, we administered free lunch in our school. We had at various points the tiered system. Uh, and then at various points we experimented with making it all free. And the problem the problem with the voucher system is that it puts it all it, it puts a lot of faith in the parent. 
And I have a lot of faith in yeah. parents generally, but the problem is sometimes the most distressed households, the parents could be dealing with substance abuse. The parents could be dealing with homelessness. Like I had a student who, and this would be, this would probably be true of a lot of students, but in one particular student I'm thinking of, she was at a different household almost every week. And sometimes her mom would be there. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it wouldn't. It would be an aunt, uncle, grandma, yep. et cetera. And she used to come to school early. She'd get breakfast. She'd get lunch. And a voucher system isn't going to solve that for her because the adults in her life had let her down. And I think that reminds me a little bit of like this debate that's going on on the internet, which there's some of this I'm sympathetic to, but some of it makes my head boil uh, or my blood boil. Uh, let's go to... Two different clips here. First, let's let's go to a clip from a Minnesota state senator who was a critic of this bill, uh, and this is Steve Drazowski or Draskowski, a uh, Republican from Minnesota. Mr. President, I have yet to meet a person in Minnesota that is hungry. Yet today, I have yet to meet a person in Minnesota that says they don't have access to enough food to eat. Now, I should say that. Hunger is a relative term, Mr. President. You know, I had a cereal bar for breakfast. I guess I'm hungry now. Uh, that, to some, might be the, maybe that's the definition of the bill. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't see a definition of hunger in the bill, Mr. President. Um, but I think most reasonable people suggest hunger means you don't have enough to eat in order to to uh, provide for metabolism and growth. I think polarization is a true disease. And I think it, it causes people to say things like this, where I'm like, look, I, I, I don't know this guy, but I get the sense that he is so opposed to the, the Democrats in his state that he's thinking about them and not the question at hand here, which is, do mm. are there students out there who show up to schools who don't have food and can schools help solve that problem is like a baseline question. I don't think it's the only question, but I think that's a baseline question. And once we start saying things like hunger is relative, I'm like, I'm not sure we're having the right debate here. Cause of course there are kids who go hungry. You talked about some of the statistics. Let's just accept that. Like, that's like a fact. Now we could say like, Hey, maybe we don't give the rich kids free lunch, which is where this debate has gone in a way. Yeah. But like, let's not, paper over the fact that there are a lot of kids suffering every single day and that public schools provide a really important service in feeding those kids. Like that should just be an accepted fact. Like you don't have to agree with us on policy on that, but that, that should just be a given. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I completely agree. I think that's hugely out of touch. I, there's, there's some legitimacy to the fact that it's a very small portion of those hunger insecure uh, or these food insecure households that actually have a child that's going hungry in them because people tend to divert their resources to their children first as they should. That does not negate the fact that there are kids that, that could be going hungry, that are going hungry, that just, I mean, a family should, if they're going to have to be compelled to send their child to public school, they should at the very least expect that if they're going to be there all day, they can have access to food that they need. I think that's really important. Um, yeah. And I, I do think that that's, if we're going to, as a society, adopt the responsibility of educating students, I think we should adopt the the policy that you can't you can't go hungry i mean being guaranteed yeah. food i mean how do you how do you even learn if if you're not 
adequately nourished. And studies have shown that that with improvements of of school lunches and access, that that test scores do sometimes go up, or at the very least, it doesn't hurt. And so I think it's you know if we're actually going to be educating students, we need to nourish them as well. But unfortunately, right. I don't trust school cafeterias to do so. Well, yeah. And I think, so there's the nutrition debate, right? There's this whole question yeah. around like, are kids hungry or not, right? That's an important debate. Now, there's a part of this that I think is missing in the discussion right now. And I think it's kind of hidden behind the argument over, well, if you give everybody access to free lunch, because like essentially what what's happening in Minnesota is the, the poorest among us under the any existing version of this program should be getting free lunch, right? It's just a question of mm -hmm. how you administer it. Whether you're in Minnesota or Alabama, that should be happening in all public schools in this country. Now, what Minnesota is saying, let's just get rid of the different tiers. And I think it's just worth debating, even from the perspective of a conservative and a libertarian. And let me, let me give you my argument for this. When I was in IS-51 in Staten Island, it was a school that was incredibly diverse economically. Like it was probably a third, a third, and a third by those tiers at the time that I went there. That's just what it felt like. And it was very visible who was what, because you had different color cards that said whether you're free, reduced, or full mm -hmm. priced. So it was almost like this badge that told everybody who you were. And they used to line up in different lines we used to line up based on our cards. Now, I doubt that's how they're running schools nowadays, but it just shows you how stupid this can be in practice, is like you're basically creating these tiers of kids. Now, schools have gotten better at hiding it, but you can't, everybody knows, because there are some kids who get collection notices, there are some kids who get suspended in schools because they didn't pay um, their money, et cetera, so that's a problem. The bigger problem, mm -hmm. though, is people need to think about what schools are. Public schools are not businesses. Businesses have a whole infrastructure to collect payments, to do invoicing, to do pricing. Mm -hmm. And this tiered system requires schools to develop an infrastructure around collecting money. And, and this was most worrisome to me as a school principal, an adversarial relationship with your children to collect that money where often they're not the ones responsible for whatever's happening. Yeah. And schools yeah. tend to do terrible things sometimes trying to collect that money. They hold kids out of field trips. They hold kids out of class. They suspend the kids. They bring the kids into the office to call their parents. And that to me, that administrative burden, that adversarial relationship, and then you combine it with the stigma attached to it, even if there wasn't the nutritional argument for this, like to me that says like we should strongly consider just simplifying the system. I know it's expensive, but it will save mm -hmm. educators time and it will make life a lot easier for all the kids. Yeah, I mean, I do think, I, I do feel like there is a better way to make sure that more of that money ends up actually impacting the people most at need. I think that this is kind of just a sweeping solution to just say, let's give it to everyone. It could be school district oriented. I even, I, I know this is kind of maybe maybe a little utopian of me to say, but like, I do think that there's a world where you could do this on good faith because this, the cost of school lunches is relatively low for the majority of families. And you could rather than have a bureaucratic paperwork, red tape sort of system, you know, there's, there's a statistic that shows that if, if families need to apply for these meal 
these meal uh, exceptions and these discounted prices that 90% of the schools have difficulty getting families to actually submit the forms. And probably the kids that are most at risk have the parents that are least likely to actually go and follow through with that. Yeah. And so I, I mean, I think there could be a way that you, you can trust families to opt into a discounted lunch program without having to go through the having, having kids have special cards and stuff like that does feel like a very much like a tiered classist system. And if our public schools are doing that to children, I think that is inappropriate, frankly, because that should be the place and forum in which they feel the most equal and like they are citizens of a country growing up together that will share that country together ultimately. And I think that those optics do fundamentally undermine what we're supposed to be doing with our public public education system for sure. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I'm interested in the data on that because we tried that a few times. Like, hey, like, let's just do an honor system. People bring it. And the problem mm -hmm. is under the current system, that's just money out of pocket. Like in, in Tennessee, when I was running schools, we we're getting $8,000 per kid. Right. So you start to add mm -hmm. this up. You know, if people aren't paying their lunch, we have to pay for that on top of that. If, if they're mm -hmm. now, we didn't have a lot of uh, reduced price and, and full price kids, almost all of our kids were free. Uh, so we mm -hmm. had much less of an issue. So for us, it was way easier just to say everybody's the same. Now yeah. you start to get to mixed income schools. It gets very, very tricky because that's a lot of revenue that you're responsible for. And that's where public policy really should step in and make it easier for schools. Now, a common argument I hear from people who are against the sort of simplification of the system is, Hey, this is just subsidizing the richer kids. Now, I think that's an interesting argument. But I, would, I was thinking about it this morning, but we don't say that about everything else. When we give out free pencils or we put mm -hmm. chairs in the classrooms, yeah, we don't say, true. well, that's subsidizing the free. We don't, we don't ask those people to pay money. Now, under education savings accounts, these private schools actually will operate in a tiered system that way. But we don't think about that in the public school system that way. So that's what I would say to anybody there. We shouldn't treat food differently than we treat all other aspects of school, in my opinion, because there should just be a free system for you to go to, right? Like that's that's how mm -hmm. I think about public schools. Like it should everything should just be free and it should be as simplified as possible so that the educators could do the educating and they don't have to be bean counters. Yeah, I actually I have to say, as we've been talking this through more, I, I came in I'm skeptical of these these sweeping like I, I think that it's it's not well aimed spending like L.A. alone wastes 18 million dollars worth of food every single year in their school system. That's sh shocking. And I think that this is like a misappropriation of money. This is the strongest argument against this is the food waste for sure. I, I mean, think. it's it's yeah. just it's it's insane how how wasteful we are. I mean, nationally, it could be up to $1.2 billion annually, which is hugely concerning. But I have, I have an to idea say on this, by the way. Could I have an idea on what you just said around food waste before you talk about anything okay. else? Um, I, I, think that, I think that there's got to be a solution here. Talk about LA, for example. Like, I know that this is utopian, but like, why can't we, we take food that isn't served. Like, obviously we're not taking food off of people's plates, but like food that just isn't served, take it right down the street to the, to the homeless shelter, right? Like, wh why are mm -hmm. we not creating that kind of infrastructure for government? No, I know this well, might sound Well, the problem utopian, also is, you know? well, I think a big portion of that is that you have these pre-made school lunches that are pre-portioned and, you know, kids do have they're not prisoners and they do have like <laughs> preferences in terms of their diet. And so like you could have a half eaten plate of food. I do think that there is a legitimate um, concern there around like, I mean, you can't just give people scraps, but certainly I think the food waste thing is an issue for sure. But yeah, sorry, just to clarify, I wasn't saying we take the scraps. I was saying like we, 
we no, like, I know. Take, I'm saying yeah. I, I would be. I would just be curious to know how much of that food waste is scraps based on the fact that you get these pre-portioned meals often and you don't have an option and people have dietary preferences. But, um, you know, I think just, just to underscore, I, I feel like I have had a little bit of a shift in opinion having talked to you about this now. And it certainly, you know, I am, I grew up very fortunate and this has never been an issue that I've had to encounter personally. And so I think, you know, the more I'm thinking about this and I'm, the more I'm thinking about the fact that, you know, we have school truancy laws and we compel people to spend hours of their day, five days a week, nine months of the year in these public institutions. Certainly I think that guaranteeing them the ability to be nourished while they're being forcibly contained by the government for days on end is something that, um, at the very least we owe to them. And so, you know, I think, I think it may have shifted throughout the period of this conversation. Well, let's, that's awesome. Well, um, that makes me very happy. Uh, the, I think we should probably hold on the nutrition aspects of this uh, and probably cover that as a separate segment because I think yeah, there's a I lot agree. to talk about there. So listeners, and you can't if you're trust listen- the government to actually give people the right <laughs> healthy, nourishing <laughs> Here we go. food. Now certainly. we're back. Now but, we're back, Ricky. I, I was mean, worried about yeah, you for a second. There. I, you know, I don't um, know. Well, I was so, I was a brief a brief big hearted person for just just thirty seconds and then I. And, but I'm I do back. think like, but this is what I think it's about, right? I think it's about like no. No libertarian it, it, like believes that we'll ever get to zero government, and hopefully no big government proponent will believe that the government's going to solve every problem. I think the question is to pick your spots to you know to to solve problems that are intractable in a certain way mm-hmm. or where the the dignity yeah. and and safety of the most vulnerable in our society is most at risk. And school lunches to me rises really high on the list. It's why Medicaid is, in my opinion, one of the most important programs, probably the most important program in this country, because no argument ethically will say that a kid deserves to not have medical care. Like they don't make any choices. Mm -hmm. They're not, they didn't make any career choices. So even under the most pull, pull you up by your bootstraps argument, we can all agree that kids should have food and they should have medical care, most people. So. That's where I would start if I'm constructing my government is to get those things really right and then kind of move on from there. I think the debate around the school lunch is about how complex do you want the system to be in order to get at the people who truly need it versus not. And I think that's an interesting debate. You know, um, I happen to be on the side of more simplification. So guys, I was walking down the street the other day. I saw this guy in a Harvard t-shirt with tattoo sleeves on. And I said to myself, well, I think we're at the point now where this countercultural symbol has become very mainstream. Joe, am I right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you are right. Uh, in fact, tattoos have been around for thousands of years. Scientists have even discovered evidence of tattoos on mummies. Uh, but while tattoos can be a form of self-expression and art, they are all, there are also some health concerns and even benefits to consider when getting a tattoo. For example, getting a tattoo can put you at risk for infections and allergic reactions. Tattoos can even make it harder to spot skin cancer since they cover up moles and other marks on your skin. Simultaneously, new research speculates that tattoos might jolt your immune system. Frequent tattooing might give the immune system a regular low-intensity workout. Uh, but what, whether they are good or bad for your immune system... I think we can all agree that the First Amendment should not protect butterfly tattoos. Is everyone on board with this? Yeah, I can get behind yes. that. I can get behind that. 
Yeah. Okay, good. Or barbed Robbie, wire tattoos. The barbed wire around your arm. Let's <laughs> yeah. throw that in there too. Okay, we're throwing it in there. Uh, 6% of people in 1936 had tattoos, 21% in 2012, so it's on the up. The latest reliable figures we have from 2019, roughly 30% of uh, the U.S. has tattoos. I'm also seeing here that 40% of millennials have tattoos. Ravi, are you uh, are you in that category? I do not have t- any tattoos, I think in part because I'm, I'm a contrarian, and literally everybody I grew up with got tattoos, and then I started seeing like these people like the Harvard types getting them, and I'm like, you know what? The truly badass thing is to not get a tattoo. One of our staff members who I believe has a tattoo helped us research this segment. It's Ariane Misra, who is the host of the, or co-host of the Daisy Crime podcast on Lost Debate Network, the number one true crime podcast in all of India. Hell yeah. And Ariane, yeah, there he is. So Ariane helped us with this segment <laughs> and we want to do this more often is just invite the people who do the hard work behind the scenes to help us with segments, just help us make sense of things and also help make sure we don't get things wrong. Ariane, uh... I want to just start with your decision to get a tattoo because, you know, we heard all the data, like, why'd you get a tattoo? And is this common in India? Because I think you're still in India right now, right? Yeah, I am in India, not by the virtue of choice. I just happen to be here. But, you know, who would appreciate my tattoo is Joe and his Italian heritage. So the tattoo I have, it's it's Stikazzi. And this word translates to, Joe, you would know, I mean, literally translates to something I wouldn't want to say on air, but... What it means, yeah, yeah I'm not going to say that, but what it means is who cares? And it's like an expression of, you know, live your life. Just who cares? And it's And I got this tattoo in Italy. It's fuck it. Yeah. It's, it's like, fuck it. Yeah. I, I didn't know we could curse okay. on it. I'll say it for you. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, you yeah. can. Yeah. Uh, Ricky, do you have a tattoo? No, I'm like, I'm very much in your camp. I, I'll, I'll, I'll share after Arian's done. Yeah. No, and you Joe, are. We, I don't think I heard you yet. Do we hear if Joe has a tattoo or not? I don't, but I do. I do plan on getting one and uh, essentially I'm getting the recipe for Nestle Toll House's chocolate chip cookies and I'm going to get it reversed on my back so that way I can look in the mirror and read the recipe when I'm making cookies. That's smart. So Ariane, okay. help help us out here, Ariane. Is this a good idea? One of the one things I wanted you to help us with is the science because you know, I've, heard, I've, I've read not one but two Atlantic articles this week about tattoos mm-hmm. and safety, which to me tells me that the elite are onto this. Uh, so is this a good idea for Joe? Uh, outside of the, the choice of what tattoo Joe is going to get, like, is this, is this a good health choice? So- you know, when you walk into a tattoo shop and you're all excited that this good looking guy is going to, you know, paint a butterfly on your hand, you need to remember that there's still a hundred thousand year old homo sapien body that is being stamped, you know, stabbed 3000 times by a knife because your body can't tell the difference between a butterfly tattoo and a knife. So to your body, you're being attacked fundamentally. So let's start off with that. So is it is it good? And well, your body is immediately going to react to the stabbing and there's going to be inflammation. Your white blood cells are all going to kick in to cure the wound. But that's all normal. You know, that's part of tattoos and tattoos have been there, as Joe said, for millennia now. But what goes into the contents of the modern tattoo ink, that's the first thing you need to be careful about, right? So there's this guy, Dr. Berg, and we can throw to the clip who talks about all that goes into the tattoo ink and we must be careful of what is in it. Here are some of the chemicals and things in the tattoo ink. Uh, Number one, uh, there could be heavy metals like mercury, lead, cadmium, 
aluminum. Not good to expose your body to that. There could be acrylics, which is a certain chemical, certain solvents, plastics, chemicals like BPA. Now, all of these are classified as a carcinogen. So why would you want to expose your body to these um, things that could potentially cause cancer? And the other thing is that manufacturers don't have to reveal their ingredients if it is a proprietary blend. Basically, make sure that it's organic, free of acrylics, uh, free of something called PET, plastics, solvents, and heavy metals, and iron oxide. Now, all that sounds really scary, but it sort of mirrors a general complaint almost any pro-organic group has towards anything, you know, shampoos, vaccines, there are these components that you don't necessarily know what they do. And so you say they're carcinogens. But his complaints aside, Catherine Wu in the latest Atlantic article that you talk about, Ravi, goes into some other aspects of having a tattoo that were previously not known that are, you know, they aren't necessarily harmful effects. They might as well be benefits for the immune system. So would you want me to get into the pros or the cons first? Yeah, let's let's pause there for one second and just say, all right, I don't think people are saying necessarily we need to ban tattoos, right? That that's I don't even think the debate we're having is we're saying like is this a good choice or not, right? Um, and so one thing to just layer in also is just like the question of the cost removal because tattoos are permanent, right? <clears throat> and the cost mm-hmm. is something in the order of, I think you said the average price in our research was. for the removal of a tattoo, but obviously it depends on how big the tattoo is. It could be thousands of dollars to remove a tattoo. And this, I think, is a reason to at least exercise caution. Like what I would posit to our audience is like, once you hear the rest of the science, you may just decide you never get a tattoo, but if you're still like, ah, the risk is worth it, I would give yourself a period of time that you wait to be like, all right, I have an idea. I'm going to wait one year before I get a tattoo based on an idea, because you may change your mind. Um, I don't also, know. Also, I'm my just own. amazed by, like, this is so pervasive in our society. Like, it's a third of people in America. It's been a thing since, like, ancient times, and there's a frozen Iceman um, that they found, like, what's his name? O- Otzi the, yeah. or something like that, the Iceman, and he's got a ton of tattoos all over his body. Like, this is a tale as old as time, and we're just now having this, like, weird Atlantic-inspired conversation mm-hmm. about some, like, health concerns around it. It's kind of amazing to me. This feels right. a little bit late, and I'm sure that, if anything, tattoos in the in the contents and ink are probably safer now than they ever have been before. So I'm sure that this has been a legitimate risk for quite a long time. Like it's, I've never even heard this conversation had, which is kind of amazing to me, despite the fact that I have so many like very woo woo health conscious people in my orbit that also have tattoos and they just don't talk about this. Well, I think the easiest way, cause I don't want to go down this rabbit hole of like all the science. So Ariane, why don't you just dispense with us really quickly? Just give us your opinion, and then we'll link to the show notes, like a bunch of pieces for and against. What's your opinion on this? Like, you're you're somebody who's like really into you know longevity, health, geeking out on science. Like, bottom line, did I just you describe convinced? you as the woo woo yeah, health yeah. person? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I would say I'm. On you know, the, you're I'm, somebody who, though born in India, you though born in India, you are spiritually of Williamsburg. <laughs> so I will say this. You know, I'm recording this <laughs> from Delhi. So the 
air I'm breathing right now is certainly more toxic than any tattoo I will ever get. So that's the caveat <laughs> there. Um, but my, my, just the baseline opinion, of course, we can link it to all the science there is. But if you remember sort of, have you ever got, seen, a, seen an amoeba or like a paramecium under the microscope and how it gobbles up food? And, you know, those are the famous biology class mm-hmm. videos you see. So now think of your skin cells like that. And so in your skin are these macrophages, which are pretty much like a single cell amoeba in some sense, right? And so they gobble up the tattoo ink when, the, your, when your skin is punctured with it. Now, that's how the tattoo is visible. It's visible because there are so many macrophages in your skin that have gobbled up this ink and they can't digest it. And it's so, so it stays there forever. Now, the argument is that because these you know, macrophages, which are supposed to be fighting against diseases, are instead divesting their resources, maintaining a butterfly or a semicolon tattoo. Are they not doing what they're supposed to do? And so in case there is a disease, is your body not fighting optimally? That is one of the concerns. On the flip side is that maybe this is actually good for your immune system. There is research out of the University of Alabama, which shows that Folks with tattoos tend to have extra antibodies in their bloodstream. And so that can be reflective of the fact that they have better immune systems, or at least their immune systems are jolted because they're con- constantly exposed to foreign agents. So there, there are two, you know, there's two schools of thought here. There is way more research required to prove if they're bad in the long term. I personally don't think that they're bad um, from all the research I have done. And I think the risks are, you know, the same as any risks of being a 21st century person where you're having these inorganic shampoos and bad polluted air and the water. And so I think the risks are minimal and the happiness of having a good tattoo outweighs anything. Yeah, I'm just still shocked, though, that I'm just still shocked that these are unanswered questions. Like this seems like something that should be well investigated by this point in time like it's just it's it's amazing to me it's not news to anyone I mean it's not like we just discovered that it's like the white blood cells that are ingesting the ink and stuff like I you'd think that people would have gone down this rabbit hole a long time ago but you know I'm I'm kind of cleanly in the anti-tattoo category but that's only because I came out of the context of having gone to NYU and having a lot of friends that feel that they're very subversive and edgy and all having the exact same mm-hmm. tattoos um, I actually wrote an essay about this while I was there and I used it Please as like an analogy it. for my send, my send politics at NYU that my uh, I, my being a, f- a girl showing up in uh, floral dresses to NYU classrooms I was actually the subversive person <laughs> as was I in the political realm too so, um, this I mean, is, this is a, this goes deep for me. This is one of my earliest, um, little opinings that I had. I think, I think Ricky, you say your favorite show is sex in the city, but I actually think it should be golden girls. You know, I don't think you've ever <laughs> seen golden girls probably, but I think that's more your jam. I've seen a little it's bit truly of, yeah, on brand yeah. for you as the 80 year old <laughs> trapped in a 20 something year old's body. You know, Ari, you said something interesting to me, the pleasure of having a tattoo. Please explain to me as a non-tattoo person, what I'm missing out here. So I think, you know, tattoos can evoke memories or meanings in people who get them done consciously. Now, there are, of course, the examples of tattoos that haven't been done well and there are tattoo fails. I mean, talk about Ariana Grande. She got... Mike Tyson. Mike, no, I mean, Mike likes his tattoo. But Ariana Grande, for example, she got a tattoo on her palm, which is one of the most painful places to get a tattoo. And she wanted to get tattooed Seven Rings, which is her hit song in Japanese. It was because it hurt her so much, she stopped it midway. And <laughs> that tattoo, she didn't, she didn't realize <laughs> that that spelled out 
Japanese barbecue. And so she posted a picture of that and she was roasted on the internet because she had Japanese barbecue mm. as a tattoo. But those kind of tattoos aside, to me, I mean, the word stikatsi sort of evokes a memory. I got it in Italy with my best friend and um, it's a beautiful memory. And I'm sure that's true for other daring, edgy people who have tattoos. Look, I just want to read out the five most common tattoos in New York City here and discuss, because the cultural part of this is more interesting exactly. to me than the science. Number one, butterfly tattoo. Number two, rose tattoo. Number three, dragon tattoo. Number four, flower tattoo. And number five, snake tattoo. I can't believe we were still getting snake tattoos. Like, that's yeah. very, very 80s, you know? I have to say, I just... I'm very live and let live. Do your thing. If it's meaningful to you, good for you. But the people that just make me like my skin crawl are the people who are clearly trying to do it as like an outward symbol of rebellion when that is just so clearly no longer the case. Like the, the, everything is flipped around a little bit. I feel yeah. like in our culture and certainly in places like New York city, you see a lot of people who are like, it's, they're trying to make it like their fuck you mom thing, but then their mom mm -hmm. has a tattoo too. Like it just doesn't work. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So I, for the people who have something meaningful that they, that they feel um, is important to them or like, you know, I have friends that have like handwritten handwriting of um, like deceased relatives and stuff. Like I have that, mm -hmm. you know, go for it. Good for you. But if you're trying to be the young and edgy person, I would recommend adopting my aesthetic at NYU and seeing how that goes down. Yeah. Ricky, I could see you with a Gadsden flag tattoo. <laughs> yeah, probably. That's a, that's all I would, I would consider. That's why I think piercings are safe because piercings generally they go away with time. Like I had this pierced like on my face, like on my librette pierced. Um, and up until very recently, I could really? still squirt. Yeah, I could squirt water through it up until recently, but now it's closed off. But now it's closed. Like, Ew. I don't have to pay any money. Um, but you have to pay money for this. Like, I used to date this Brazilian tattoo artist, and she had tattoos all the way up her neck, and she had to remove them, and you could still see them. Like, they're, like, still faint up her neck. Like, you almost can't remove some of these things, and it's very expensive and painful, you know? Yeah. So, Why would you have to remove... Why did she have to remove them? She just regretted them. She also became better mm. over time and realized that her original tattoos that she had were not like, to me, they looked almost like uh, Ghostbusters. Like they were like a weird green color. It looked almost like Slimer, which is a whole other story. But needless mm. to say, um, yeah, I think Ricky, you and I are are truly the countercultural types now. Ariane, welcome to the mainstream. So you're spitting water out of your bottom lip that's disgusting <laughs> yeah i used to have a spike it was a spike here believe it or not it's a very different time of my i want to see pictures of that yeah i'll send it to you there's, a, well, there's some fashion choices involved too <laughs> that i think when combined maybe we need to burn those everybody Ariane, joe ricky thank you uh the, the crew is growing uh we'll be back on thursday with some trends we think unless something big happens in the world and uh, yeah, with that, have a nice day. Uh, rate, review, subscribe, you know, say nice things about us on the internet, and we'll talk to you Thursday. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support and video editing by Julia Waldman. Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Dean Metherell.